Well, if you have a Bible, I'd like to ask you to turn to Romans 7, the passage that we just read. And what we're going to be thinking about this morning is the misery of trying to save yourself. Now, as I said, uh, when we read the passage, that Romans 7 is really the the middle chapter in a three-chapter section. And what Paul uh, has tendency to do is to um, state his position and then not necessarily moving on from that position but coming at it from a different angle, opening it up uh, a bit more and perhaps bringing in illustrations and so on to help us to understand it. And the subject that he turned to in Romans chapter 6 is the Christian life. It uh, opens with um, a a well-known part of scripture, what shall we say then? Should we sin that grace may abound? He answers that with a very definite no, certainly not in our translation. May it never be in some other translations. Don't even go there in modern speech. And he proceeds from that to talk about the Christian life and living the Christian life. And what things enable us to live the Christian life, what things are important if we are going to live the Christian life, and what things actually can prevent us living the Christian life. And he's still dealing with that same subject in Romans chapter 7. Now the relationship in particular between Romans chapter 7 and Romans chapter 8 is uh, a subject of controversy among Christians. And I'm not going to help you in any way to resolve that controversy, uh, but I will tell you one thing to do that you will find very helpful if you have the ability to do it. If you've got access to word processing software, and in, particularly, uh, in particular the sort of software that enables you to produce word clouds, I recommend you to, uh, uh, using a, a, a Bible program, unless you're a very good typist, copy the text of Romans chapter 7 into your word cloud software and produce a word cloud. And then after you've done that, set that to one side and... Do the same with Romans chapter 8 and produce a word cloud from Romans chapter 8. And then compare the two word clouds that you have. I'm not saying you can do this with every passage of scripture, but it's very helpful in this case. Compare the two word clouds that you have. And you will see, as you do with a word cloud, that there is in each case one word that's bigger than all the others that stands out. And you will see that that in Romans 7 and Romans 8, the two big words are two different words. And then if you take that big word in the Romans chapter 7 word cloud and look for it in the Romans 8 word cloud, you'll struggle to see it. It's there, but you'll have to look around among the little words to try and find it. And the same thing works in reverse again. If you take the big word in the Romans 8 word cloud 
and struggle and, and, and try and find it in the Roman 7 word cloud. Again, it's there, but it's hard to spot. Now that will tell you that Romans 7 and Romans 8 are describing two quite different things. I know that one particular point of view and a, and a popular point of view too in certain circles, ours among them, is that in fact they're both describing the same thing. But if you do what I've just said, you'll see that that's kind of hard to um, think that that could possibly be the case. And I think in the, in the passage as well, there are, there are clues uh, to that, that they are not describing the same thing. They are describing the same person, quite possibly, but not at the same stage in their lives, and not at the same stage in their Christian lives. So, Paul then is... Uh, looking, as I say, at the subject that he introduces in chapter 6, how can we live for God? How can we live the life that God wants us to live, tells us that we should live, and in fact requires us to live? That's what he talks about in Romans chapter 6. And what he tells us in Romans chapter 6 is that if we are ever going to come to do that, we have to model ourselves on Christ. And that by being one with Christ, we have to do something that Christ did. We don't do it ourselves, Christ did it. But if we are one with him, we are considered as having done it. And that is to die to sin and to rise again to live to God. And these are, the, these are the subjects that Paul then unfolds in greater detail and we're going to look at chapter 7. Now in the German city of Zwickau there is a car factory. It is a real state-of-the-art factory. It's owned by BMW and it produces very good quality BMW cars. Three or so decades ago, when East and West Germany reunited, that factory was there still. It wasn't owned by BMW at that time. It was owned by another company called Trabant. And you might remember, if you, you, you saw the pictures and so on, of these funny little old Trabant cars. If you rushed out and bought one, you could have picked one up very cheaply and it'd be worth a lot of money now, but uh, personally I wouldn't want to own one at, at, at any price. They had a smoky old two-stroke engine. They, they didn't really go very fast or, or, or have any sophisticated equipment on them at all. Uh, the body... Uh, when the Trabant factory first opened in 1957, when they started using this factory to produce Trabants, was metal, it became plastic, it actually became cardboard, or parts of it became cardboard right towards the end. But if you go back further into that factory's history, it existed on that site before the Second World War. 
And it was then owned by the company that now produces Audis. So what, the reason I'm talking to you about that is it shows the importance of relationships. That you have a factory which produces high quality cars, it then becomes a factory that produces low quality cars, and it's gone back to being a factory that produces very high quality cars again because of the relationships it has to different people, the investments that it receives and so on, and the wider economic environment. And what Paul tells us in this passage, in Romans chapter 7, that if we are going to live for God, we must have a relationship with God. It isn't enough for us simply to be educated so that we can reel off the Ten Commandments and other portions of Scripture and so on. It isn't enough for us to know certain things. We have to actually know Him in a personal way. We have to have a relationship with God if our life is to be on the same level as a BMW and not the same level as a Trabant. And Paul uh, spells out in this passage that it is uh, often the case that, that, that we try and live the Christian life without actually becoming Christians. That we think of it all in terms of a matter of law. Now in this church in Rome there were Christians who had been Gentiles and there were Christians who had been Jews. And Paul is particularly addressing those people now. He says to us in the first verse, he tells us that he is speaking to those who know the law. As I said, he's still dealing with the same subject that he turned to in chapter 6, but now he's turning his attention in particular to people who know the law. Now the law is something, it is, a, it is a, an element of the revelation that God has given of his own character. We often, uh, when we think about the law, we often think about the Ten Commandments. And it would be amazing if anybody, or, a, any of us could actually keep the Ten Commandments. It would be a most amazing thing. Not in terms of our, our outward life and the things that people see, but right into our hearts and into our minds. If we could embrace those standards which are in the Ten Commandments and love them, it would be a truly amazing thing. Now the people to whom Paul is writing here certainly knew the Ten Commandments, they would have been brought up to know them, and they would have known much more of the Old Testament law beside the Ten Commandments. And the first thing that Paul tells us about this law is that it has dominion over a man as long as he lives. And what he means there is that our relationship with God is defined by our conformity with God's law.
whether we think of ourselves as Christians or not, whether we would like to think of ourselves as Christians but we sort of struggle to do so or whether we're confused about the whole thing, the fact is that our relationship to God as his creatures is defined by his law. He requires all of us to love him with all of our hearts. He requires all of us to worship him. He requires all of us to love and to act in a loving way towards one another. He upholds the highest standards, much higher than anybody ever actually attains to in their life. And these standards of God have a rulership over us, have a dominion over us. They define our relationship to God, whether we please him or whether we don't. They define our own sense of peace of mind. They, they define us uh, psychologically and emotionally as well as in our relationship to him. And we might think, therefore, if I want to live for God, I've got to keep his law. That's really what it's all about. I'm conscious of the fact perhaps that in many areas I don't keep his law but if I want to live for him and, and this is what God wants from me he wants me to keep his law and so I'd better try and start to do that now Paul illustrates the binding nature of this law with reference to the marriage relationship he says that if two people are married, that's how they should stay. They should stay married. If one of the two people in the relationship, in this case the wife, decides that she really wish she hadn't married the husband she's got, but rather have married somebody else, and so she leaves the husband she's got and puts herself in a legal position where she's free to marry and goes and marries somebody else, then as far as God is concerned, not as far as we are concerned, of course, in, in our uh, society today, but as far as God is concerned, that's something that she should not do. She is an adulteress. And there's no getting out of that. And, and this is what Paul means when he says the law has dominion over us, dominion over a man, or in this case a woman, as long as they live they enter into relationships which are defined by law and they are obligated to maintain those relationships according to God's law however the situation might arise where uh, the, the woman in this case can marry another man and can have children by another man and that situation is if her first husband dies so what uh, Paul is saying here is that if, uh, uh, if, if, if her first husband dies, then her relationship to him, in terms of a binding relationship to which she must be faithful, is ended. And she is free to go and form the same kind of relationship with another man, have children by that other man and so on. She, she's not doing anything which in God's eyes is wrong or in men's eyes should be thought of as wrong. 
But then he, he tells us why he's, why he's been referring to this situation. And the reason he's been referring to this situation is because, like the relationship between this woman and this man, our relationship to the law of God is a binding relationship. When we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So what we learn is, although God's law dominates our relationship to him, it actually doesn't do us any good. We might think, it's all I need to do, is, is to know about God's law and to keep God's law. But actually, God's law doesn't do us any good. Why not? Because we have a problem inside. We have a problem with God. And we have a problem with his law. And we hate him. We hate the thought that we shouldn't be free to live our lives however we want to be. And we hate the thought that with, there may be consequences to our actions that, that we don't want to be there. And we consider it to be very unjust. We think we should be able to live exactly how we want. And you know, this is the story of mankind throughout the whole Bible. If you go back right to the very beginning, to the book of Genesis and to uh, creation and the instruction that God gave to Adam and Eve as to what they could do and what they mustn't do, this was really a sort of weak spot in them. And when Satan came to them and said, has God said? They said, God has said that, that we can partake freely of everything that grows in this garden but one tree. If we touch that tree, we're going to die. And he said, no. No, you're not. What God knows, and he's not told you, is this. That if you eat the fruit from that tree, you will become like God, knowing good and evil. And what does that mean? What does knowing good and evil mean? It doesn't mean knowing that some things are good and knowing that some things are evil. They already knew that. They knew they could eat what they wanted and they mustn't eat from this particular tree who told them God had told them because God knew what was good and what was evil and Satan said to them if you eat that tree eat from the fruit of that tree you'll be like God because you'll be making your own mind up about what is right and wrong. You won't be listening to him anymore. You'll be making your own mind up. And if you think something's good, well, it will be good. 
And if you think something is evil, it will be evil. You'll be taking control of your own lives. You won't be under the control of God anymore. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil, determining what is good, determining what is evil. And so even before the fall had occurred, this was, a, uh, this was something in human nature that was a kind of weak spot. It, human nature was attracted to running its own life. And we are all attracted, aren't we, to running our own lives. And they were tempted on that basis. And they did give in to the temptation, looking forward to this wonderful liberation that they were about to open up to themselves and this wonderful position of power and so on that they were about to put themselves into but what happened? just what God said would happen in that very day they ate of it, they died God came looking for them in the garden and they hid themselves that was a death work. God spoke to them as though he didn't know what had actually gone on, but he did, of course. What have you done? And so they had to confess. And the end result that day was that they were cast out of the garden that God had put them in, cast out of this ideal environment into a hostile environment and they had to do battle now with everything with the earth, with their own reproduction and so on it was all a, a challenge and a difficulty and, and that's where we still are in life, we haven't gone anywhere from there we still do battle, don't we, with the environment it's a big issue and we have to work at making any kind of progress and there are many problems in life that we cannot overcome at all even though you know we've, we've been on this earth for thousands of years uh, and, and, and people who, who peddle the myth of evolution will tell you we've been on this earth for millions of years we still haven't learned to live here successfully relationships are bad, communities are bad we have a government. Why do we have governments? We only have governments because there are problems. If there weren't any problems, we wouldn't have governments. We wouldn't need them. But we have to have them. And we have to have armed forces. And we have to have police forces. And we have to have social services. And all of these things. We need, we need many, many structures in society. To try, and, to try and make this world a livable place to be. We haven't become like God. We have fallen, even from what we were. We haven't become like him. And whatever sort of uh, signs of progress and so on, people want to, uh, to make a great deal of, you still carry out surveys and, and, and you find that children are unhappy and, uh, and, and, and the, we still have food banks and we still have all these things that show that we haven't really got the hang 
of the world we live in and harnessing its resources and so on and creating uh, communities and making it work for us. We've still got uh, conflict and, and haves and have-nots and all of that. And all of that became or it stemmed from that one lie and the gullibility of the first man and the first woman to believe it and to think it must be true, in some ways you can kind of forgive them. Nobody had ever lied to them before. They'd never lied to each other and God had never lied to them. So to be encountered with a, with a lie was something brand new in their experience. But they should still have listened to what God had said and, said, and they should have said, that can't be true and that's true as well. Only one of those two things can be true. And it must be what God has said. So, the problem is with that kind of harm, even if we have God's law, it doesn't solve the problem. And this is exactly what Paul tells us here. When we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law, hang on, the law, isn't the law telling us not to do something? It is. But that's all we need to be told. Not to do something, to want to do it. The sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. And he spells this out in a bit more detail further down. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? You bring the law into a situation and sin seems to increase and the sense of sin increases and the sense of lostness increases. So is the, is the law something we'd be better off without? Certainly not, he says. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said you shall not covet. We don't know what sin is, you see, naturally. And Paul brings up this particular example, coveting. What does coveting mean? It means this. I envy you for your job. You don't deserve your job. I've worked harder in my life than you ever have. Why have you got that good job? I should have that good job. Not you. I envy you your lovely wife. Why isn't my wife as lovely as your wife? I should have a lovely wife. I envy you your kids. Those well-behaved kids. My kids should be well-behaved. I've been a really good dad. Look, your kids, you've been hopeless being a dad compared to me. So I envy you. And this is coveting, you see. Wanting something, it's further than ambition. It's all right to be ambitious. But coveting is when I want to take something away from you and bring it to me because I kind of feel aggrieved that you've got it and I haven't. Now, we all do it. So who would think that's sin? We wouldn't think that was sin. Because we all do it. It's just a kind of normal human behaviour. And that's what Paul says. 
I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said you shall not sin. Well, what happened? Uh, you shall not covet, rather. But what happened when the Lord did say you shall not covet? Did Paul say, well, I better stop doing that? No. He says, but sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, that commandment, you shall not covet, produced in me all manner of evil desire. The Lord didn't stop me coveting, it stirred up coveting in me even more. And so bringing the law into the situation doesn't actually help. The law tells us we have a problem, but it's not the remedy. So, what is the problem then? Do, do we need to sort of embrace the law more in our own hearts and in our own minds? Is that going to solve the problem? Well, he says no. Because he then goes on to describe himself and he says, the law is spiritual. But I'm carnal, I'm fleshly. I'm all about the flesh and satisfying the flesh. Soul under sin. For what I'm doing, I do not understand. I know the law. I know it says, don't covet. But I do. Why am I doing that? I don't even understand myself. I know it's not the right thing to do. Your problem might not be coveting, it might be something else. I guarantee you've got a problem when it comes to the law of God, probably a lot more than one. What is our relationship to the law of God, even if we know it? Well, we're informed by it, we might even embrace it. Yes, that's, that's what a good person looks like. That's what a good person sounds like. That's what a good person will say in these circumstances. And maybe even in terms of our outward appearance, we can sort of keep up a kind of conformity to that good-lookingness. but in our hearts. And that's why it's interesting that Paul picks particularly on this matter of coveting. It's a heart sin. You can go through all your life coveting like mad and nobody need ever know. But God knows. And so Paul talks about this tussle. He talks about I. You know, my heart. The inward man, he calls it. The inner man. I recognise that God's standards are higher than my standards. I recognise that I'm not living up to God's standards. I'm not living the life that I ought to be living. I recognise all of that. But I still can't do it. And he comes in the end to this situation. <coughs> In verse 24. Oh, 
wretched man that I am. What can I do? Nothing. Actually, that's all I can do. Nothing. And he comes to that position. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from the body, this body of death? I can't deliver myself. But there is a deliverer. And because Paul is writing these words after he himself has become a Christian, he can take the story right through. He's described himself under conviction, but he can go further than that because he got beyond that himself in his own life. I thank God. What for? You haven't sounded like you've got much to thank God for up to now. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And what is it that Jesus Christ our Lord does for us if we come to him? Well he does what Paul says in verse 6. He delivers us from the law. He delivers us from the judgment cast upon us by the law. Look, just on into uh, chapter 8. Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death for what the law could not do couldn't produce a good life in me because it was weak through the flesh the problem wasn't with the law it was with me God did it God produced a salvation that transformed by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin he condemns sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit how do you live for God? by giving yourself to God not by pulling up your bootstraps and trying as hard as you possibly can to live the life that God's law sets out before you that you recognise to be the life you should be living but you can't live it. Not by doing that at all, but by giving yourself to God. He thanks God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And if you come to God, you must come to God empty-handed. The hymn writer, uh, it was top lady, wasn't it, who wrote, Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked. That's how you've got to come to God. Stripped, you're completely naked in terms of good deeds. You haven't got any. You can't clothe yourself in them. 
come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, filthy, dirty, rotten, I to the fountain fly. Isn't that what you do when you're dirty? Wash yourself? Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Saviour, or I die. And I encourage you. I don't think you've got to make yourself good or something like that before you can come to Christ. Come as you are. Naked. Empty-handed. Helpless. Filthy. And see what Jesus will do with you. It will surprise you for the rest of your life.